Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Line Trust, specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. Today's episode is a first for the podcast for a few reasons. It's the first recorded in front of a live audience, the first to feature a knight of the realm, and the first that I have hosted while wearing a very smart jacket. For one week only, we have outgrown the audio recording facility, and instead we're about to take you to the beautiful surrounds of the conference theatre here at The Telegraph. And there's a wonderful show for you in prospect. Sir Jeff Hurst is our special guest and he's joined on an actual stage by our chief football writer, Sam Wallace, for a discussion about England, their prospects at this World Cup and a certain football match which took place in the year 1966. Let's not waste any more time and hand over now to our host. It's Tom Gibbs. Good evening and welcome to The Telegraph. We are delighted to have you here for a very special episode of our Total Football podcast. We are recording this event, so to avoid the fury of my producer, I've said it before, please ensure that your phones are at least on silent, ideally turned off. Please now give a big conference room welcome to our chief football writer, Sam Wallace, and England World Cup winner, Sir Jeff Hurst. Thank you. Thank God you remembered. <laughs> oh, right, Sir Jeff. Sitting on a special chair, I might as well tell you now. I've had a hip operation a month ago, <clears throat> and it popped out two weeks ago. Oh yes, everybody does it when I say that. So I mean, ultra careful. I'm okay, but I'm on a high chair. Such is your dedication to podcasting. Such my dedication. That you've made yeah. it Couldn't let it. you down. Yes. Uh, any guesses where we'd like to start? Um, at the beginning. Yes. Uh, well, we're going we're gonna to skip ahead slightly to 1966. You're, in, you're, you're completely right. in charge of everything. Just carry on and I'll follow, you, follow your lead. If you ask me a question, I'll well. answer it. How's Sounds that? perfect, yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll get Sam involved a little bit as well. Sam who? Uh, Sam Wallace. You did meet him. He was just then. He just reminded me. We, we met in 2000, 2001. 2001. And I bumped into him once at St George's Park, which I remember. I was uh, dispatched as a cub reporter to interview this colossus of English football. Uh, you still look very young, I must admit, <laughs> quite frankly. Still, yeah, you haven't aged a bit, mate. 
1966. Tell us about the mood then. Tell us about what sort of state English football was in. And did we go into that tournament expecting to win it? I don't think we went necessarily... If you go back in the history of the World Cups, we hadn't competed in a couple of the early ones. Uh, our first um, World Cup competition was in... Uh, 1950. 50, when we lost one naught to the USA. So a general expectancy coming into that, we weren't part of it. Europe, clubs didn't play in European football, so we were adrift from a lot of that, that kind of mood. Coming into 66, I think, uh, although within the squad you never say we were going to win it, but what people don't recall and remember is that with a, a year to go, the team had been unbeaten. Alpha got the basis of the, of the back six or seven, uh, the front few chains in the final, but the basis of his team defensively had been there and were unbeaten away from home. Had a hugely successful run in that, um, in that year. So coming to it, we knew um, the kind of uh, mood the team were in. We all knew within the, the, the group of players, very seasoned, hardened, tough professionals. Alf had a, one thing I learned over the years about football and business is if you don't get people to be part of a group, you get them out. And I've taken that, that kind of method into business, which I've retired from now. If you've got a group of people you're working with and somebody's doesn't want to be part of it, you get them straight out. And I advise my children and grandchildren on that on a daily basis. I think it's quite important. Now I've got players out that didn't want to be part of it. Even players who were probably, you'd look at them and say, why is he new playing? He's, his quality of his play is somebody that should be in the squad or and or in the team. And there were notable um, examples of that, names I won't mention, that you thought should have been in around and weren't. So he was left prior to the World Cup games themselves, where they, over the period of time for three years, a hardened group of totally fantastic professionals incorporating in probably the best backbone we've ever had in a World Cup team. The best, I mean, the best backbone. Banks, Moore, Charlton and Greaves. I mean, Jimmy didn't play in the final, but I'll challenge anybody to name four players better than that at one time. We've got some great players, Gerard, Lampard and so on, but four players arguably the best keeper, nobody's replaced Moro. Bobby Charlton, 100 games, 49 goals from midfield. Not up front, from midfield. Jimmy Grease, the greatest goal scorer we've ever seen in this country. Um, sadly got injured and I came in, but that was the strength. One of the important things to winning a World Cup is that team spirit, the camaraderie for the month for international teams. A very, very important ingredient that people get on uh, together. It's... It's actually, people talk about it being boring, and it is. It is boring. You know, you've trained all even year. Even in your own country? Even in your own, it's boring. It's, it's boring. <laughs> it's not for I mean, us, Jeff. We, we really like it. <laughs> it's exciting. The only thing that doesn't make it boring is winning the damn games. Um, I'll, I'll be quite open about that. And you hear different methods over the years of trying to entertain and keep the players, you know, golf and socialising, take the women over there and all that sort of stuff. And it's about the team spirit and the togetherness and winning the games. Was there a moment where the mood changed, like a moment of destiny during the tournament where you thought, hang on, we're going to do this? I think probably when my, my fourth goal went in. <laughs> 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 Up to then, we haven't done any better than anybody else. So hardly, hardly. No, I don't, I think it's... I think when you're in... When you're in the squad, you are, you're locked away, it's boring, and you're in a bubble. You're not completely aware of, of what's going on outside. You're not aware 
uh, of the mood of the country, you're not aware of uh, the fact there's no cars on the road in England. You know, you're not aware that 35 million people are watching it. You're not aware, you become aware of that today when people tell you, um, come up to you and say where they were, what they were doing. And you get women, bumped into a woman a couple of weeks ago, got married on the day. And she recounted the story on her wedding day. The vicar was saying, would you like to, it's the woman to be a lawful lady. Oh, hang on, the Germans have just scored. <laughs> <laughs> and so those, those kind of stories, you realise um, how big it is. So the enjoyment um, of, of winning a World Cup in your own country, of course, just simply lasts forever. I could tell you loads of stories about that. One more story about that. How long we got? <laughs> There was a, a ferry coming back from the Isle of Wight to Portsmouth or South Sea in extra time. Nobody on, there was no television, no radios on the ship apart from uh, the ferry, apart from one guy who had a radio listening to it on extra time. Gradually, the people on the, on the ferry started to graduate across to where he was. To such an extent, the ferry master had to tell everybody to get back in the centre of the ship <laughs> or the, before it capsized. And I've got loads of more though. <laughs> but I'm making the point that the enjoyment of um, is uh, you're not aware you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion at that at that time certainly. And I and I come at it from an individual point of view from a different perspective. I shouldn't have played. Jimmy Greaves was the great goal scorer, he, and, and it happens. And sadly, he got injured before the quarterfinal. But I sat on the bench at the beginning of the uh, Uruguay not being picked, quite rightly, started with those very average players, Roger Hunt for Liverpool and Jimmy Greaves. I sat on the bench, never, ever, ever dreamed I'd play for England. Sitting on the bench in the World Cup final, my mood was, I am just happy to be sitting here, just happy to be in the best 22 players. So when my, my time came, my chance came, I was in a great frame of mind to, to take my chance because I wasn't, hadn't become disillusioned as you see players occasionally or people in walks of life, they get bombed out, kicked out, don't react very well. Uh, where I was completely the, the other end of the scale for that. I was just happy to be there and ready if my um, chance came. Funny, I never thought I'd play for England or be picked for England, but looking back at my career and, and life and goal scoring, I should have been picked three years earlier. <laughs> I should. These days, you, you, you have one good season in the Premier League, you're in. I was scoring goals from 63. 30-odd, 40-odd goals a year. 63, 64. 65, West Ham won the Cup, the Cup Winners' Cup. I'm top goal scorer, almost in the country. Still not picked. Why was that? No idea. But it didn't bother me. I didn't think I would get picked anyway. So it was quite a surprise when I was training indoors at Forest Gate in December 65, when Ron Greenwood came over and stopped the five-a-side indoors. It was bad weather. And came over and said, you've been selected for the, the game against Poland at uh, Everton. And I got selected for that, which is, I'll never forget when that happened. I didn't play in the first game, but I was selected for the squad in that game. We won one nothing. Bobby Moore scored and broke his tooth. And I was picked for the next game, uh, which is uh, against Germany, my debut in, in February 66. You've spoken about your memories from the final being so vivid. Is that true for all of the matches you've played, or is that just because you've had to tell those stories so many times at this point? I think, I mean, naturally, you're going to remember the, the biggest game, representing your country at Wembley for England against Germany, it doesn't get any bigger than that. And beating a great German side. And because it's... You remember a lot, of, a lot of games. You don't remember all the games you played. You remember significant games for, for different reasons, different things that happened, funny things, unusual things. But in terms of that particular game, I do recount much of what I was thinking during the game and the passage of the game. For example, I remember exactly what I was thinking 
when Bobby Moore played the ball to me for the final goal. I went back to their goal. Bobby, a fantastic pass to me, wonderfully floated ball. And I let it brush across my chest, but the referee was still in front of me. I was actually looking at the ref as the ball came to me, and he had the whistle in his mouth, waving, play on. So as I turn around and go towards their goal, I'm thinking, the game's nearly over. I've seen the ref. I'm now, and I'm thinking all this, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. If it goes beyond the bar, beyond the sand, and into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to Tilkowski, surely to goodness the game has got to be over. But as you know, I miss it. it <laughs> but I do remember exactly one, one thing about one thing about another psychological thing about playing against people in in all sports is not to let the opposition see. In tennis, we see it often, where you don't let the opposition see you're not doing very well. And um, the guy that Mark B, the Germans in in extra time, he uh, couldn't speak English. Uh, he gestured to me to slow down, which was a very silly thing to do. <laughs> uh, Could you see the pitch invasion, the famous people on the pitch? Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to score a World Cup final goal. I'm look at my frigging shoulder. <laughs> That's <laughs> so the difference between you and me, I think. <laughs> I think I would have been uh, extremely distracted. I, I, I'm astonished when I look at the camera angle the other side from the commentary, um, where there, there are people on the halfway line. Um, and, of course, that... The, and people no more recognise the commentary more than sometimes the game itself. The co- that final commentary, Kenneth Wilson Holmes, when, of course, we all know what it is. You know, there are people on the pitch, they think it's all over. It is now. And I challenge anybody to watch that, that game now and come up with a better commentary. And that phrase, they think it's all over, is now part of our language, as you know. I was introduced to a, by a grandfather of a young boy about two months ago. He was trying to tell this young boy who I was, and the kid was a bit... <laughs> and then and he said to this kid, do you know that they think it's all over a bit? And the kid said, yeah. He said, well, that's him. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, 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 the whole thing, the, the, the extra time, the goals, um, that final moment, the, the commentary all it added to uh, the last half hour with the disputed guy added to, to make it uh, a, magic, a magical occasion, of course. Tell us about the elation afterwards. How did it feel and how long did it go on for? And what was the after party like? Um, well, the, the, the happiness and enjoyment goes on forever. Um, it's a, a tiny bit of a blur. I remember so focused on the game, afterwards, before and afterwards, it's a tiny bit of a blur. In terms of the aftermath party, there was a, a banquet at the Royal Garden Hotel where we stayed for the four semi-finalists, plus all the dignitaries, and um, our wives were not invited. So none of us have seen our wives for probably six, five or six weeks. Of course, my wife reminds me of that fairly regularly, <laughs> as the women do. Um, and there was nothing organised. That was the. It was just that function, and nothing else was organised. And I, I thought to myself, Saturday night, you know, you, after a game in London, you go out and, and have a few beers. You got to do that. So I, nothing was organised. So I decided. I've been to Danny Larue. Remember Danny Larue, the female impersonator? He had a club in Hanover Square uh, at the time, and I'd been there a few months before. In those days, Ronnie Corbett, you know, Ronnie Corbett used to do a, a bit of a skit there as well. And the food was nice and it was quite an enjoyable. It stuck in my mind. So I thought, well, I'm going to try and get a table for half a dozen of us. Um, and me thinking, like two weeks before, I've got no chance of getting in. I mean, I've got no chance of getting in. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? So I went with um, Martin Peters, Alan Ball, John Connelly, and Nobby Styles. Would you believe this? All organised. Last minute, Martin Peters' wife, Cathy, who'd moved house during the World Cup final, he decided for some apparent reason to stay in the bedroom all night. 
So he didn't make it. So Alan, <laughs> me, Borley, John Canelli, God rest him, and, and uh, Nobby, we had a fantastic, you know, when they play When the Saints Come Marching, and I got a lovely picture of us there. So that was, other, the other players have finished up all over the place. Uh, the, the Playboy Club, Jack finished up apparently in some garden in Barking. Or, in, <laughs> a <laughs> decent night out. A, a he probably had a decent night if he can remember it. <laughs> so that was the uh, aftermath. And the thing about, of course, the, the, the timing of the game, it was July 30th. The clubs have been training for two weeks for the next season. So there was very little time for us to sit back and enjoy it. Uh, in terms of because we were ready, we had about a week off, then we were back at West Ham um, training. We played Chelsea within a week, first game of the season, at home got beat 2-1. So you're back to earth quite quickly. So there's very little time to sit back and enjoy it because of the, the, the timing of the, the actual game itself. You famously cut your grass the morning after the final. People don't believe this. Was that intentional? Were you doing it to keep yourself grounded or was it just, no, Sunday, this that's is what, what I do, I, man of routine? That's what I do every Sunday. Right. I went home and cut the, cut the lawn. How's your head? Uh, okay, all right, wasn't too bad. I wasn't, didn't get actually paralytic that night. Um, I had a few <laughs> drinks. It was a social night and I didn't get, we had a wives with us so you can't really get stuck in if you've got your wife with you, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so I went home and... Um, I uh, cut the grass and I cleaned my, my blue Ford Anglia, which is the, um, <laughs> that's what I did. Does Helmut Haller still have your, the ball that is rightfully yours, the hat-trick ball? How long have we got on this? <laughs> have it, have eight got, minutes, no got, more than eight minutes. Have we got an overnight stay? <laughs> <laughs> so, after the, the, at the end of the game, Helmut Haller, the German number eight, he, uh, the game finished and he stuck the ball up his shirt and buggered off to Germany. That ball stayed in his loft in Germany for 30 years until 1996 with the Euros here. And there was, for some reason, there was a, uh, which inflames a battle between the mirror and the sun for some apparent reason to bring the ball back. And the mirror won the award along with Branson, who supported part of that financially, to bring the ball back, got Hallis to bring the ball back out of his loft. They paid him 80 grand to bring it back. I was part of it back here to receive the ball, quite confidentiality, confidential so nobody could see it, and all I had to do was kiss the ball and it finished out on the front page of the mirror. So, um, saw Haller a few years later, um, before, before 96, we had a Q&A when the Germans played here and he was, he was doing their bit for Germany and um, he was asked about the ball and he, he didn't speak English, he spoke in German. I said, what did he say? He said, well, it, it's, he said, it's common practice, he said in Germany, if you score the first goal in the World Cup, finally keep the ball. Which I thought was a nice answer. And that ball is now in the, um, the uh, museum in, in Manchester. For the best. I'm not quite and sure I'm buying that It actually had Pelé's... Pelé had signed that, strangely enough, as well. There was Pelé's signature on, on that ball for some obscure reason as well. <laughs> so uh, I didn't get the ball, no. Who cares? <laughs> can, I, can I ask... Although I would have missed the, missed the 80 gram would have been handy. Can I ask if the... the um, the famous team talk at the end of full time when Alf says to you, you you've won it once, yeah. now go out there and win it again. Did you hear him say those words? Yes, yeah. I'm not sure all of us did, but most, either most of us did or most of us talked about it at, at the time or immediately afterwards. So we, we, they've equalised um, the end of, of normal time. We're now sitting on the pitch. This side, the Germans are over that side sitting on the pitch. Alf comes on the field, immediately says, get up, one or two sit on the backside, get up, get up. Don't let the Germans see you're tired, get up. 
And then he spoke to one or two players individually about the particular aspects of the game and then got us together in a group and he simply said, you've beaten the Germans once, go and beat them again. So it's sort of things that stick in your mind. Mm. I'm getting a bit choked about it now, to be honest with you. So, uh, and, and so much, if not all of the credit, goes to the fantastic manager. Uh, unbelievable. For those that don't remember, at Ipswich, you know all this, a provincial club with a bunch of older players and cast-offs, they won the third, in five years, they won the third division title, the second division title, and they beat Spurs to the first division title in, in three years. And they had a left winger called Jimmy Ledbetter. He was about 130 years of age. <laughs> and he had this, it was basically a 4-4-2, but this, Jimmy was a deep lying, he obviously was not quick, he was getting on a bit, and he sort of quite a deep lying. So the right back had a problem whether he was going to nail him, get down and nail him, but leave a huge gap for Phillips and Crawford or Into. If he didn't nail him, he'd be pinging balls to them anyway. And he, this, this guy, you know, he's much of an older... You look at that team. It's a, and teams used to play against Ipswich and said you'd murder them and get beat 3-1. And Alf had this... Because taking Alf's method of play and, and methodology of basically 4-4-2 and taking it to the national side with the quality of players I've, and temperament I, I've told you about, he was always going to have a chance and his method of uh, uh, managing. Uh, um, for me, you've got a man that's so powerful, he can decide your future, whether he picks you or doesn't. So that kind of power, it doesn't happen so much today. It's, you know, it's a, 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 that doesn't happen so much today, of course. There's a different, you know, we're, I played in the medieval times. So it's that much power to say, well, you pick for England or you don't pick. That can have a, quite an impact on your career and life. So um, whatever he said goes. Uh, so I'll tell you a story about what his final life. When it, I left, uh, we, we had a meal after one of the games at Wembley in those days when you did it with the, both teams and the referees and lines and dignitaries. This was after the World Cup. I was one of the first ones to go and leave, want to get home, fed up with all these banquet stuff. And I looked across to Alf and said, see you, Alf. And Alf looked at me and went, maybe, Jeff, maybe. <laughs> and apparently the other players, in the, many of the other players in the squad have told very similar stories. So it tended to keep your feet on the ground. What stopped England from building on the World Cup win in 1970? It was a bit of a freak result, really, against West Germany in, in 70. <laughs> not, not, the, not the big one, not the good one. Oh, wait, se oh 70. Yeah. Oh, se yeah. oh, oh sorry, I mean, 66, sorry. Um, what, what, well, I think not, it didn't stop us. I think over that six years, six or seven years, from Alf's early reign through to 1970, I think we had a, a very good chance in 70. We, we won it. We had, a, we had a couple, two or three players came into the squad... There were about six or seven of the squad, of the team, still there. Alan Mallory came in for Nobby Styles, Franny Lee up front, and uh, we were the team to beat, uh, without shadow of doubt. And we had this crazy game. And even the Brazilians, we played the, arguably, now we know now as the greatest Brazilian side that's won a World Cup. We played them in an early round, and we lost one nothing. And it, it could have been a draw. We, we played, we were on a level with them, in their backyard, playing in... in um, 12 o'clock noon, 100 degrees in the shade, against the greatest Brazilian side, and we lost one nothing. And it could, Jeff Haston had a goal later on. And we were the team to beat. And I think what they say as the Brazilians, that gave them a lot of confidence. They'd beaten the holders, the, the team to beat. So they went on from there. But against Germany, when we got to the, the quarterfinal, it's an astonishing game. At that stage in our lives against Germany, we'd always had the upper hand most of the time at, at that stage. And leading... 2 nothing with about 20 minutes to go. I've never played in any game, any game, where we all felt the game was over. 
So much so that he took Bobby Charlton off, who was 32, to rest him, hopefully, for the next game. And, of course, they came back and, um, and beat us 3-2. One of the key reasons for me, we, on the day, we did not have in goal Gordon Banks. Gordon Banks, the greatest goalkeeper I've seen um, then and now. Schultz was close, I think. Absolutely brilliant goalkeeper, one of our, our key players. Goes down in the morning of the game. Dodgy beer. With a, with a dodgy beer or jippy tummy or whatever they, Montezuma's Revenge, whatever they call it. And so I think with the great, Peter Benetti came in the last minute and trying to replace, trying to replace one of your great players, Banks, Moore, Charlton and Greaves, is, is always going to be, particularly in goal, and such a, that is such a key position. Uh, Alf was blamed for taking Bobby Charlton off. Um, Beckenbauer scored the goal, but the goal, Beckenbauer's goal went through um, Peter's jockstrap. I mean, it was... <laughs> Uh, d- disappointing. Can I just ask Jeff, when, when you played your last game in '72 against Germany, yes, and obviously Alf was still in charge, but he was his position was slipping by that point, and he would go on to fail to qualify for '74. Did he? Did you ever speak to him after he after he effectively ended your your England career? No, not at all. It's not something you did, Alf. Uh, not not at all. Jack Charlton was keen on. Coaching and, and talk to him occasionally about why he was picked. Uh, for me, no, I just got on with it and uh, did what I was told, and and, uh, and that was it. I think the interesting thing about that that last game, because uh, I mean I played five times against Germany. As you know, my best game, my worst game, my first game, and my last game, mm. and another game in Hanover, <laughs> five times. So my, my career is quite linked. That particular game, my last game at Wembley. It was in the quarter-final of the Nations Cup when it was played over two legs. They came to Wembley with Muller and that, that great side that finished up winning the World Cup in two years later. They beat us 3-1. He picked the squad for the, re- uh, the second leg in Germany. He didn't pick me, left me out. Um, as often happens, the, the, one of the player, front players he picked got injured and he walked maybe back into the squad on the Monday and it looked like I was going to play again. It would have been my 50th cap. That day... I, had, I pulled a musty in my back and didn't go. Pulled out and never played again. I had did some strong, very strong rumours that they were finding it hard to replace me, that he was going to pick me a year or two later, but was um, um, thinking about it. But, and Franny Lee said to me once, he said, your style of play, he said they're trying to find somebody that plays like, like, like me, whatever style that was, um, which was interesting. Is there anyone in the modern game who reminds you of yourself? No, I think no. I, I say that honestly, but I don't. I think every player has has, has different kind of uh, attributes. Nobody is exactly the same as anybody else. Uh, no, I wouldn't say. Not, not particularly. No, not not really. No, is the answer. <laughs> Can I just, I just ask? What, no, what, I think it's a <laughs> well, quite good question. No. <laughs> what's fascinating about six six, which we forget, is that West Germany is as they were then, had never beaten England. They, no. The game you mentioned in 68 in Hanover was the first time that they beat... So oh, they, was it? That was the Yes, they have a kind nothing. of... Yeah, yeah. yeah they, have a, they have a place in our history now where we kind of see them as, as sort of indomitable in some way and, and, a, and, and just, just a nemesis, really. But they didn't... When you faced them in 66, they didn't have that reputation. No, not at all. And we had... And the game in, um, in, in uh, uh, Mexico, those years later, winning 2 nothing. Again, we beat them, and the game the game was over. So, um, of course, it changed from there. But I've got to, I'm a great admirer of the German game, the German team, the German players, four World Cups. I think it also it helps. 
I think the structure at club level is also lends itself to the national side. A greater <coughs> percentage of German players are playing in the Bundesliga and, and, and German coaches and managers. And I think that lends itself a lot more to the success of their national, national side as opposed to more foreign players playing in this country. And maybe, maybe it's hard to put your finger on why we haven't been successful. There are lots of reasons you can give. Possibly, um, possibly the winter break where people say our players are tired, possibly. Um, whatever, we should, whatever the FA should do is to do it, whatever they can possibly do to enhance the success of the national side they should do. And if, if the winter break is something they, they I think it's probably about to come, isn't it? They're it talking is. about it, and it's long overdue. To do anything they possibly can for the national team to be successful. And I've, I'm of one that really, the, the most important, look at my career for West Ham and England, the most important thing in anybody's life, career in sport, is to represent your country, as opposed to what you're doing at a club level, whether it's cycling or gymnastics or football. And, and that is important, um, the most important thing. If I had to choose today, looking back between f the fantastic years I had at West Ham, they were absolutely brilliant years as, as a club player under Ron Green with a great coach. Uh, Harry would say he's still the best coach he's ever seen. Um, playing with Bobby Moore and Martin Peters. Second division, and then four or five years from coming up in Division 2, we won the Cup, the Cup Winners' Cup at Wembley again. Only the second time a... Uh, an English club won a European trophy after Spurs, only the second time. So they were absolutely taken apart. But if I had to choose between that wonderful time at my club, who gave me the chance to play football, and playing for England, there's, there's only one choice. Dennis Law was asked that on TV a few months ago, whether he, wanted, he would have preferred to play for Man United or Scotland. Bear in mind, Man United is the biggest club in the world, and Scotland is obviously not a major international team. Before the question had finished, Dennis said Scotland, <laughs> which I just loved. <laughs> the Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Looking ahead to 2018 now, what is the minimum requirement for the England team this summer as you see it? Well, you ask that question a bit, and a lot of people ask that and they say quarter-final. I think because we, let's be honest, quite frank about it, we've had two extremely disappointing tournaments. Let's not get away from that. Bitterly disappointing. Um, two games and out, two games and out in Brazil. And then the, the Euros are absolutely awful, awful game. I've never seen a game like Iceland. In fact, I wouldn't think we, we could beat the, f the food store on the day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you an interesting fact about that. Because people look at us, the cynics look at people like I say, you don't want England to do well, you don't want anybody to score three. And that's absolute, I'll use the word nonsense because we've got some ladies here. Uh, I'm as passionate about the England team doing well as I was as a player. I'm a fan of English football. I'm a, obviously an English fan. I'm an Englishman. I understand what it, what it means. And um, my wife remarked after the Iceland game, we, we both watched it at home sit, sitting in different settees. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. <laughs> and she said to, after the game, she said, I've been with you now 50 years. She said, I've, I've watched games on television. She said, uh, and Matt, she said, I've never, ever, ever seen you so animated screaming at a television screen as much as I was on the day. <laughs> So it, let's be fair, it's awful. So at the moment, the first objective is to get out of the damn group. And if we can't get out of this group, um, then we are, then it's going to be extremely depressing. <laughs> and I think importantly, 
we, obviously we should, Tunisia and Panama we, sh we should beat, but it's no reason, although um, Belgium have got some fantastic players, and you, you look at them as one of the possibilities who are going to go a bit far, they've got some wonderful players, and we know who they are playing at a good, good level of football, um, Hazard and, and so on. There is no reason why we, why we couldn't beat them on the day, no reason at all. And I think it's quite important when you get to the World Cup, if you can, on this particular group, if you can win your group, your next round is marginally easier than if you finish second, you could finish up bumping into something like Spain, possibly, in the second round, which is going to be more difficult. So the importance of, of winning your group um, early on is important. And absolutely no reason um, why, why we can't win the, the group. I, I can only look at things positive and positive. There's so much negativity surrounding it, you know, the game. Everybody talks about what we can and can't do. As a, as a person, uh, there's no room for being negative in, in my life, my, my body as a fan, as a player, um, for what we achieved. And I always think with a, a bunch of young players, we're going to do well. Uh, I can only think about that. You can, you can very easily look at negatives to say, the goalkeepers are quite young and inexperienced and so on. You can pick holes. I really haven't got... I let other people do that. I haven't really got the time of day to... to yeah, that's to our make. job. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, does the style matter for England at this tournament or is it just all about getting to whatever success looks like, whether it's the quarterfinals or the round of 16? Will, will Gareth Southgate be bothered about how his team does that? Well, I don't think the two can be separated, so I think good teams do well at tournaments. I, I think you can have a good World Cup without winning it. And one of the things that we're so envious with the Germans is that whether they, whether they win it or not, they've, they more often than not get to the semi-finals. They give their fans hope and they give them something that, that they can be proud of. I think Southgate has set his stall out in the last two friendlies. He plays three at the back. He's going to pass, they're going to pass the ball. I think the problem for them is, although that's an ad admirable approach, there are other teams that have done it for longer and do it better. And if you look at the, the big teams in Europe, Germany, Spain, France, Belgium, they all have better players who have done it for longer. But I think it's the right approach to take. And while you can never write off a World Cup, it, it, they, they remain epochal events in any player or manager's career. I do think that you, at some point you have to say, this is how we're going to play. And we're going to play this way for the next four years and try and, try and build on something. You certainly have to be consistent about your approach. Uh, whatever that is today, you've got to be consistent. You can't keep moving around. I, I talked about Alf Ramsey. He had an approach at Ipswich. It was basically 4-4-2. And he just took that. And Jack Charlton asked him um, why he picked him at 30 years of age. Because uh, Jack was nearly 30 when he first capped. And, and Alf said to, to Jack, he said, Jack, he said, I have a basic method of playing, which is basically 4-4-2. And I simply pick players from the clubs to fit into that pattern, pattern of play, which is a business plan. And then he sort of peed Jack off a bit. He said, Jackie said, very important, this, I don't always pick the best players. <laughs> <laughs> what he's saying is, he's picking players that will play as a team and play together. And that Jack would complement Bobby Moore, uh, a very important central defensive partnership. Togetherness and balance was, was extremely important. And left people like Morris Norman out, who'd been an established player in centre-back, but he felt that Jack was a better complementary complement Bobby Moore. And he did that right throughout the team with that central defensive partnership. Um, and you do have to have a style of play. I quite like the idea of Kyle Walker playing at the back if they're going to play five. I think that's, that's quite new and in innovative. He plays right back for Spurs and, and Man City. He he's, looks like he's going to put him 
alongside the three centre centre half, as a centre-half. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's good because he's as quick as lightning. So I think that's quite a, a nice change from taking somebody that's a right-back and putting him in the national side as a, as a central defender. And I, that, I hope that works. That's, for me, that, that's quite exciting. Harry Kane had a fairly disappointing time at Euro 2016, as did most of the England side. What will he have learnt from that, Sam? I think what's interesting about this generation of players is they're the ones that are coming through are actually quite used to winning. So the next generation, we've seen the under-17s win the World Cup, we've seen the under-20s win the World Cup. Kane's sort of, of the last of that group who, who haven't had that. I think the next generations of England senior players are going to have one, one junior tournament. Um, he's a pretty phlegmatic character. I mean, uh, what you see on TV is pretty much what you get. There isn't really another side to him. He's a very serious man. He's had to fight very hard for his career. He grew up in the generation where the top clubs, Spurs less so, but most of them were stocking their academies with, with young foreign players that they'd kind of um, they'd hijacked from uh, top European clubs. So I, I don't expect it, him to kind of... I don't, I don't think the burden will be too heavy on him. I mean, he also played under Southgate at the Under-21 Championships in 2015 and, and they were poor in that tournament as well. So he, he, he's been through it before. I don't think... I don't, it doesn't strike me that, that, it, that it bothers him. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to be someone who labours under... I think if you look back at someone like Steven Gerrard, he was always someone who did, who did look pretty careworn. I mean, his... His sort of opening speech to the players in 2014 was "Don't mess this up," which was which was not the, it was it was more about the consequences of failure than the potential consequences of success. And I think I think as much as I loved him as a player, I think I think it's a very different mindset between the two. Can I just say something? Just reminding me about um, saw a piece in the paper which came from a TV um, interview between uh, Frank Lampard, Rio Ferdinand, and Stephen Gerrard. Do you remember? Did you ever mm. see it? Astonishing. I don't know whether you saw it, and I saw the piece in the paper, and the three of them were discussing the fact that when they played for England, they very rarely sat on the same table, they very rarely discussed what happened at their own clubs, and at the end of the article, he said that they've got to, it's got to be slightly better teams for it. And I found that absolutely astounding, absolutely astounding. The three, and three great players, of, of arguably three of the greatest players we've had in teams all, all over, and coming out and saying on a TV programme and, and admittedly saying we should be getting together, they didn't sit on the same table. And I've just explained how important that team spirit and camaraderie is um, to, for a national team to be successful. And we have seen national teams with fantastic players over the years in different tournaments that are falling out and one's, somebody's gone home and somebody's had a row and somebody, you think, well, what, what the hell is happening? Partly because it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> As has been covered. Is that still going on, Sam? Or do you get the sense those barriers have come down a little bit now? I think they've done everything they can to uh, to to change it. Um, the rivalries aren't what they were, presumably no. at club level anymore. And you have to remember as well that Southgate lived through that era partly as a player. So he he was an international up to about I think, 2003, 2004. He he saw the Beckham years, and he actually he looked upon them pretty pretty dimly. I mean, he was. He was there, I think it was 2003, when England played a friendly in Durban and they were invited to see Nelson Mandela, which was a flight to Johannesburg. And, and a lot of them, I know it, it sounds churlish to say, a lot of them had met him before and they felt that it was just a Beckham photo opportunity. And, and Southgate was one of those who, who just said, look, I'm, I'm not going to go, I'm, I'm, I'm here as a footballer, I'm here to, I'm, with all respect. 
And um, so he, he pushed back against that and, and he saw England from the inside in the modern era. So I think he's pretty well placed to deal with that. Um, but these are powerful young men. I mean, they have lots and lots of money. They, they have a whole little mini industry around them, very different to, to Jeff's era. <laughs> and, uh, and they all operate as these mini corporations. So um, they're quite hard to tell what to do. And although they, you know, they're very professional and they're not, very few of them are drinkers or they, they, they know how to look after themselves, they, they also have a, an acute awareness of their own value. So breaking down those boundaries is, is, is harder than you might think. And yet still, as Alan Ball once said, God rest him, uh, when he, he was involved, he said, uh, how do you give a bollocking to a millionaire? <laughs> <laughs> Which but sums it up in a, way, in a way. Still affected seemingly, though, by the sphere of failure. Do you buy that? Do you think that's really playing on their minds, like what the likes of Sam Wallace might write about them if they, if they do get it wrong? As a player, as a, as a person, I, I, I don't consider that remark, you know, as a fear of failure. If you're in a profession that, that they're in at the top level, being fr frightened of losing or fear of failure, just something that goes beyond me. But you're asking one person, you ask another guy. You may... As in, it should be, that should be beneath them, even thinking about that That's sort not, of stuff. Yeah, well, not necessarily beneath them, but it's something that I find it absolutely astonishing that they'd even think about. What, what if we lose today? You know, you just go out and you just give it your best shot and, and uh, on the basis of how you've been and, and go from there. And you're not going to win it. Listen, we all know in football, you're not going to win every game. You're going to have good games, bad games, nightmare games over your, over your course of career. It's all part and parcel of being a, being a pro. Nobody wins every game. Every England, West Ham have had you know, great moments I talked about. We had a couple of uh, bad moments as, as a club and me individually missing a penalty in the semi-final of the League Cup. And I, I still get reminded by West Ham fans of our bumping. <laughs> well, I didn't miss it. Gordon Banks saved it, but that's a... That's a so you, you have good times and bad times. It's all part and parcel of um, uh, being a player, being a performer in, in any sport. What's been your favourite World Cup that you weren't playing at? Uh, two come to mind. One, I love Mexico. Uh, although we were knocked out in, in the quarterfinal, I love Mexico. And I always said to my wife, if ever the World Cup went back there, we'd go and watch it. And I went with my wife and I, and I was there at the, the Maradona game. Just as a, as a fan, effectively? As a fan. Just as I said, we'd always go and do that as a fan. And um, went with my wife and finished up. Uh, Bobby Moore's wife, Tina, turned up. Had not expected. She came, <laughs> picked them both at the airport. She turned up as well. So that was quite good fun. And the other one was the German World Cup. Um, I was part of the process to try and get the World Cup back to England for the 2006 World Cup, um, which obviously didn't happen. But I'm involved with McDonald's and um, uh, as an ambassador. And the guy I reported to at McDonald's, we decided that I was going to do some work over there. And I went, we hired a car for the whole of the World Cup and travelled in a car everywhere. The weather was brilliant. The Germans, a fantastic place to go, watch the games. And uh, that's one of my favourites. But the Mexican one was also more on a, on a personal favourite with my, my wife being there. Going to Russia? And I was, uh, no. No, because I think it always, by and large over the years, I spend more time doing uh, work connected with the World Cup here yeah. than actually going to the World Cup over wherever. And strangely enough, I did the draw for the Brazil World Cup, which was fantastic. Um, seven or eight of the ex-players in different countries did the draw there four or five, four or five years ago. I was asked to do, be part of the draw again for Russia in December. But just at the time, and I was going to go, 
But just almost at, at the time that they asked me, they are I'd almost about to accept, two sponsors, uh, Coca-Cola and Sunseeker, wanted to do a couple of promotional things here. So I thought, well, I didn't slap to, to Russia. I'm always allowed to do two, two working jobs uh, in January. So, um, but by and large, it's mainly in this country. So I'm, I'm very, strange enough this year, busier as I've ever been really connected because of the World Cup, lots of, um, and I, we were talking earlier, I think it's accelerated this, whatever the words are, it's accelerated the, the work, the recognition uh, that we do. I, I find I'm busier now this year, particularly uh, at this age of mine than, than I've ever been, which is, is quite nice. And I have very few hobbies. Um, I, I haven't got a lawn now, so I don't cut the grass. <laughs> I live in a penthouse apartment. Still got that car, though. I, I, I sold in the car, but the car's gone. And so I, um, I do, let's do that, and uh, that's it. Right, let's get off the imaginary fence and start making some reckless World Cup predictions. Uh, who's going to win the whole thing, Sam? Um, well, I think the four European sides that we mentioned before, Germany, France, Spain, Can't have four, Sam. And, Can't and, have four winners. And uh, Belgium. But I, um, I've just got a feeling for France. I think, I think the, the depth of the talent is big. I think they, they obviously went close at the Euros. Um, if you look at their latest friendly, I think... Uh, N'Golo Kante, Paul Pogba both on the bench, which is extraordinary really. So I just feel in terms of the depth of the squad, they've got it. It's whether uh, a lot of my contemporaries, the, the reporters in France, still have their doubts about Didier Deschamps. Um, but when they played England in Paris, was watching Ousmane Dembele and um, Mbappe, even against, I mean Mbappe even against Kyle Walker, who's arguably England's quickest player, was just it was barely a contest, yeah. and that was a real a real eye opener. How when it came down to it, they just turned it on, and and England couldn't live with them. The usual suspects, yeah, the usual suspects. The, the World Cup's only been won twice outside its own hemisphere. Um, Brazil won it in Sweden in '58, and of course uh, Germany won it in Brazil. So it's more likely to be Europe, more likely historically to be a. A, a European team that's going to do it, uh, but there are three or four. Usually, Germany, France, Spain. Um, you, you can't go far away from Brazil, um, and possibly Argentina. It's uh, so it's very difficult to pick. Um, do you want me to pick one? Yes, please. That's what we're here for. Um, uh, Germany. There you go. Confirmed. <laughs> Don't ever bet on it. It's only a guess. <laughs> what, what, about, do I, what do I know? What about your dark horse? Who's the team you're looking forward to watching play? Might not go all the way, but should be fun to watch. I'd go with Belgium. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the quality of players they've got, if they get their act together as a team, I'm not saying that it has been bad, but if they can really get it together, the quality of players they have in that, that, that's, that squad is, are very, very good. And on, on a man-to-man -man basis, I think they compare very favourably with any, any other team. So uh, I look um, possibly to them as a dark horse. Uh, Tom, I'm going to go for Poland, um, who I think they'll just really fancy it in Russia. Mm. And, and with Russia having such a hopeless team, it's quite a good chance for them to sort of give, the, give their sort of... Um, their despised neighbour a black eye. I, 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 they, they didn't really... They haven't got it together in the past, but they've actually got a, a side that's been together for a while and in 
Lewandowski, they've just got one of the most formidable strikers in Europe. They've also, I mean, they've got very strong goalkeepers. I mean, they, they've got probably the best selection, you know, Szczesny and Fabianski. But they've, they've, got, they've got experienced players like Kamal Glick, uh, Milik, who's at Napoli. And they've been together a long time. So they're one of those teams that seems to, they, they really care about their national team. And I think they're just due a good, a good tournament. Yeah. Finally, how far are England going to go, Sam? Um, well, look, they're ranked 13th in the world, so a top eight would be real progress. Um, and especially given, I think there are some superb teams certainly out of Europe, and it's and it is effectively a European World Cup. So um, I'm just going to stick my neck out and say quarterfinals. I'd go with that. I'd go with that. It seems to be everybody's. I think we all providing. The performances are good and we, we, we weren't let down in the quarter-final and, and perform well. We'd all be quite happy that we've given our best, you know. You, you can't, after the Iceland game, you think, oh my goodness. So if, if they perform well and just have been unlucky on the day and give their best, I think as, as supporters of the national team will be not unhappy after what's happened in the past and getting that far. What's the mood in the room? Confident about England? Right, end on a high. Thank you very much, Sir Jeff Hurst and Sam Wallace. That's all from Total Football. We will now be taking a short break before returning on Wednesday, the 13th of June, World Cup Eve. We'll have a new episode with you after every England match, up to and including the triumphant victory in the final. Possibly not, but don't worry, we'll continue throughout the tournament until it's all over. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to contact me before then on Twitter. It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast by looking for Total Football in Apple Podcasts or other non-Apple podcast outlets. Our theme tune is by Polvo. Delve into their back catalogue at mergerecords.com. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist fund managers. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.